This episode is sponsored by DevESG. DevESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz. That's www.devvesg.com forward slash greenbiz. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how climate tech startups are scaling equity-based solutions, how the UK's economic turmoil is affecting sustainable business, a major moment in sustainable aviation, and the cure for groupthink? Just ask. We're inquisitive this week on 350. It's October 14th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, probably just taking a break from raking leaves. It's Greenbiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. Hey there, Joel. I have not gone leaf raking yet. It is still good. The colors are still coming, but uh, but no major uh, leafage, if you will. Okay. <laughs> no, no jumping in leaf piles at this moment. Do you okay, get that well, out there? Do you get leaves? Oh yeah, stuff? yeah, we actually yeah. do. We have uh, sycamores and, and and some other trees that uh, that uh, create a, on, on good years create a nice uh, you know colorful. Mm-hmm. Uh, display and then drop and yeah all that so, what do you mean by yeah, good years good. like when there's water well or? i mean good years <laughs> when we get to see the the colors of the leaves mm-hmm. uh now there is some years we don't you know they just wither and die and never mm-hmm. turn red and orange and, and all those great colors mm-hmm. so we don't get the fall spectac- spectacle we just uh, get dead leaves <laughs> so but i'm not yeah. raking but i'm investigating <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're working on a bunch of things. Uh, what are you working on? Yeah, so this week I've noticed something that I mentioned that I thought would happen. It has started to happen, which is that some of the larger accounting software companies have started snapping up um, carbon accounting startups. Uh, a big company out of uh, the UK, Sage, has just um, bought, bought one of the upstarts in the space. Um, I'll be definitely... Uh, checking that out. It's a smaller company. I don't really know them that well. It's called Spherix. But um, this is something that I, I'm like really fascinated by, the whole idea that the information technology teams at, at uh, large companies and also smaller ones are going to start looking at some of these tools, like the um, in particular the carbon accounting tools, the greenhouse gas emissions accounting tools, as well as just the broader management platforms, um, something that I've been watching. And then also I've just noticed a tremendous um, amount of activity in water technology. So I've got some my eyes on some startups. So that's probably going to be my, one of my next category um, approaches that I, that I tackle. Um, so yeah, lots of really exciting things going on ahead of Verge and COP and it, it's, it's busy. What about you? What's, what's on your plate and mine? <laughs> 
Um, you know, the usual array of stories that are all in some state of disrepair. But the one I'm working on <laughs> for, for, I think, for next week is about the growing number of, of, of jobs inside large companies that have the word nature and biodiversity in them. It's really interesting. It's, uh, it seems to be emerging in Europe, companies like Henkel and AXA and uh, Stora Enso, but also, you know, H&M, but also McDonald's and JLL and Procter & Gamble. Um, so we'll t- talk to some of them, um, find out about what the heck they do and, and what they're, where they report and just sort of give a little, I think, introduction to what is really an emerging field here. So that's the front burner story for me. And there's a bunch that are simmering on the other burners okay. as well, as you know yes. how that works. So I've always so, got like six or seven at any given moment and maybe more. Yeah. I'm sure you're the yeah. same. So. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's put those aside and go back and talk about three stories from the Week in Review. And I want to start with a story that you wrote this week, uh, Heather, about uh, it's called These Climate Tech Entrepreneurs Are Teaming Up to Scale Equity-Based Solutions. Now, Equity with startups can mean a couple different things. One is uh, financial equity that people get when they start companies, and the other is the social equity or uh, that we talk about uh, in society. Uh, what's this about? This is about the latter. Uh, this is for companies that have um, very much focused their entire business models on addressing communities that have been impacted by climate change um, in ways that... Um, others have not been. So predominantly focused on cities, predominantly focused on lower income communities, and predominantly focused on communities of color. And, you know, we know, just historically speaking, systemically speaking, that many of these neighborhoods and and places and in cities and also rural areas have been, you know, the places where um, we've put power plants, that coal plants, we've put chemical factories, you know, there's just this the fossil fuels economy has been very impactful of, of, on these communities, as well as not just um, the, the the siting of those things, but also the money involved. So like these four companies, which I've known from in the past, basically are they're all part of the Kapor Capital um, portfolio. So Kapor, and, and I don't know if you remember this name, Mitch Kapor. Um, oh yeah, Mitch and Frida Kapor. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're uh, here in Oakland and... Uh, uh, just if you don't know this, maybe you don't know this. Mitch made his money back in the day from uh, Lotus One Two Three. Yeah, and I used to talk to Mitch when I was covering software, so early on. Uh-huh. And I yeah, so when I saw this story, so they're they've invested in uh, four companies. I always pronounce this name wrong, Aclima. 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 They've yeah. kind of said Aclima, so it's it's. I, po- I apologize, oh. Davida, um, if I'm, I'm butchering <laughs> the name. But um, these are companies that we've heard of and talked about here. So Aclima, Aclima, uh, Bitwise Industries, Block Power, and Promise. Um, so they each have some some focus on how they address um, climate change and in low income and community, communities of color. So Aclima has uh, air pollution monitoring tools, very locally focused. Bitwise Industries is um, preparing uh, digital, like they're, they're doing a lot of training uh, for digital careers. Block Power is the 
a company out of Brooklyn that's electrifying multi-residential buildings, um, but like doing it for no money up front, which means, you know, mm. if you don't have the money that the capital put up, you 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 don't have to. And then Promise is similar. They, they were actually working with um, different cities to help uh, people get their utility bills paid more, more flexibly and more, um, you know, in a way that, that makes sense for them. So they, I love this backstory too, because there, there apparently was this gathering on Martha's Vineyard. They were all there at a, um, a gathering with, with other portfolio companies from Cape War and Barack Obama came. <laughs> so like, and did a, nice. a, spent 90 minutes with them and, um, talked to them about how they were doing great things individually, but why not collectively address some of these? Um, like, like here's here's the thing: when you're a mayor and you're super busy and you have all of these climate worries, would it be better for you to have five, four or five separate meetings, or wouldn't it be great for for you to have a meeting that could represent all of these different solutions sure. at once? So they, these startups were like, yeah, ha, huh? um, let's try this. So they've got a two year commitment um, to to try this out. And I, sh- I have not mentioned yet, but should mention, because it's one of my favorite parts of this particular article, is that every one of these founders identifies as a person of color. Um, you know, so they're, you know, Block Power has just come out of, they're just, they've got a lot of attention, um, part, part, you know, not just for their their solution, their technology services, but also for the the civilian climate cores that they created, um, where they're going out and, and finding people that were formerly incarcerated, that haven't had an opportunity to have jobs and they're training them and they're doing this all over the country. I, there's, um, you know, they're work, doing work in Ithaca. They just announced a project in Denver and uh, they're in Menlo Park. So just, I just love this, this whole effort. Yeah. So, so, so let me, mm-hmm. uh, let me ask a question, Heather, because uh, these are uh, all, all of these, as you, as you wrote in the piece are, um, uh, serving low-income communities of color, but who is the market? In other words, are they are they selling to cities? Who's actually paying for the services? Yeah, yes, pre- predominantly cities. It is it is a city um, solution. So if a mayor um, or um, municipal utilities, right? So it's, so it could be a municipal t- utility uh, organization as well, which I, I suppose is part of the city, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, predominantly um, planners. Uh, those who are working on this, I would say, I would think that these all these companies are also very interesting to green banks, right? Because they have um, just a different uh, focus on financing. That's that's one of the things that you know has been a systemic problem. Is that you know great? We want to put in energy efficiency in this building, but you know it costs this much money up front. Let's find a financing model. How can we guarantee this that this loan will be paid back if someone doesn't have that that credit rating you know so it it it's really focused on trying to make these things happen um by being creative with financing by just being more creative um in general yeah. so yeah it's it. a great story well let's move over to a different story it has to do with uh, sort of maybe a different part of the economic spectrum it has to do with electric tr- <laughs> yeah, electric <right>? aviation <laughs> um and uh <laughs> quite the uh, yeah, yeah not low income necessarily here but um no. this comes from our transportation analyst Vartan Badalian uh who wrote about a company called Eviation Aircraft that's Eviation not a aviation um and it uh, completed the first all electric test flight of a uh airplane named 
Alice. Now I have to say that, that this is from based on Alice in Wonderland and, and Jefferson Airplane's uh, psychedelic 60s song ask called Alice. White Rabbit. So uh, uh, <laughs> just ask Alice. Uh, and and that's, that's sort of yep. a fun little tidbit here. Uh, mm-hmm. But what's interesting, I mean, this is certainly not the first electric airplane uh, company. Uh, there's a bunch of others, and he talks about you know City Airbus, Joby Aviation, and and, and some others. But uh, this one has gotten pretty far, uh, not in distance. Mm-hmm. It's short haul flights, uh, you know. They're but they're they're um, build building uh, electric propulsion planes that can carry nine passengers plus two crew. And can go between 150 and 250 miles, um, so that's pretty impressive. And uh, I'll shut up in a second. But before <laughs> I, I keep coming back to some conversations I had with uh, the aviation so fuel companies uh, mm. back a number of the last couple of years, and you know they're putting out the sustainable aviation fuel uh, made from all kinds of different waste products and 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 crops and things and when you ask them about electric aviation electric propulsion they'll say oh yeah that's 20 30 40 years off and it's like no it's not in fact you know if you read vartan's piece it's here and now uh and or soon will be it's it's in the, it's in the near term Maybe it's uh, you know twenty years off for long haul, uh, you cross country or, or cross ocean kinds of flights, but for these shorter haul, right now one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty miles, pretty soon five hundred or maybe a thousand, um, it's it's sur- coming up surprisingly quickly. Mm-hmm. I think that um, for me, this space is coming up in the very regional commuter oriented place, right? So there's um. And that's what this company is obviously focused on that, that level of flights. Um, this particular company, I've heard of them before. I, I love that they are out there testing. They certainly got a lot of attention. They had like a CNN tour, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's one of those um, things. It's just, they're just doing their work, right? It's not getting as much attention maybe as, as it should, but it, they're actually out there and they're, they're, they're taking flight. So I, I like yeah. it. I like, think I, I'm a, a big appreciate, um, very much appreciate the name too. Um, Alice. But yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I think one of the things to me that's interesting is that DHL has been placing orders, right? Um, this could be in like four years. Uh, Global X I'm not as familiar with, but I know that DHL is, is backing this company and um, definitely buying, buying planes. Yeah, uh, and, and the big question will be, um, you know, who's going to be the Tesla of electric aviation? Um, Tesla was hardly the first electric vehicle company, but it's the one that made electric vehicles cool and exciting and and somewhat affordable. Uh, and uh, and and there's you know always one company that just comes in and makes something irresistible and exciting and and. And all of a sudden, take something that had been, you know, I don't know about this. It's too expensive. It doesn't work the way I usually, you know, do it. To all of a sudden, it's like, oh my god, I got to have one. Not that everyone's going to get a plane, but but I'm talking about from the airline uh, perspective. I'm just I'm thinking about Davos and also Taylor Swift as I'm reading this story. Like all of those people that have the money. I mean, like so that 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 will be kind of interesting to see if there's orders by individuals, right? Because this is a kind of charter Learjet kind of crowd right like this is that size so 
who will be first? That will be the new status symbol yep. in the second half later on in this decade. So we'll look for that uh, at some point. Uh, but let's go to our third story uh, this week, which came from our colleague Dylan Siegler, Vice President, Senior Analyst for Sustainability, uh, who you know digs into the sustainability profession. That's her beat. Uh, and, and along the way, programs our GreenBiz 23 conference uh, in, in Scottsdale. In the run-up to that conference, she uh, spent some time with uh, some what she called uh, brain trust uh, conversations uh, with a number of of NGOs, which is interesting. That's not her usual crowd. She consorts with the world's largest companies, but <laughs> she talked to CDP Series, uh, Global Reporting Initiative, Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, UN Global Compact, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, Sustainability Consortium, and a bunch of others. Uh, I think there were 13 in all, but about 25 people. And and just ask them, what are the questions that you want to ask the sustainability professionals in large companies? And she came away with some, uh, you know, answers that weren't revolutionary. Um, uh, three big themes that, you know, it, you know, about ambition and taking risks and focusing on impact you know, as she called it, painfully simple, but far from straightforward to execute on. But I thought it was really interesting to get those perspectives and some of the quotes that she included Mm -hmm. here, uh, just really insightful. Mm -hmm. The thing that that caught my attention was the comments about degrowth. Um, Mm. Because also, I mean, recently, our colleague Grant Harrison wrote about this and sort of it's, so it's coming up more often. And so by that, I mean, the idea that, um, it's okay not to keep doubling and tripling your revenue uh, or your products that you're creating, um, that, that maybe it's okay to have a certain level of production that is sustained over time and that is profitable, but is not like you're not trying to create more and more things, especially in a period of time when we should be creating less and less things. So I liked that degrowth came up and I love that, like I said, Grant wrote about that recently and I'm curious, you know, especially in the circular world, it seems to be a theme that is being raised or, or a, a word that's coming up more and more often. Have you well, encountered well, that? or can, can I speak that? Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, there's actually, this is uh, on the back burner, not back burner, and then I'm putting it off, but in just in the simmering stories ah. that I'll get to in the coming mm-hmm. weeks. Um, I have one that I'm, there's, there's two memes that are, that are in play right now. One is degrowth. Mm-hmm. And the other is green growth. Mm-hmm. And and I sort of wanted to look at those two together and saying, what are we talking about here? And can they coexist or are they contradictory uh, working at cross purposes? So I I don't know the answer. I really don't. Yeah. But um, it's one of those things that I want to dig into because, uh, yeah, degrowth is it's just starting to be a thing. Um, I think it's uh, I'm a little skeptical yeah. about how much it's going to catch on because our whole you know, global economy is built on growth and how do we change that? Um, I don't, not saying we shouldn't, but um, yeah, it's going to, it's a fascinating topic. Fascinating. I'm really looking forward to the conversations that are going to come out of that. And, and also with this notion of green growth, which is how do we grow obviously uh, sustainably? I think that's going to be very regionally focused, this discussion too, right? The country that you, where you're talking, you know, could be a very different dialogue depending on where you are. 
But the other thing that came out in Dylan's piece is just this thing about ambition mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 actually the get one some. that <laughs> go, go get some, but also that goes right with that is risks, taking risks yeah. uh, for a bigger impact. Um, and you know, this is uh, this is something that I think is a extremely valid critique of the corporate world right now, which is that you know most companies are just practicing radical incrementalism, uh, you know, t- or as I sometimes call it, you know, random acts of greenness. But, um, you know, they're, they're just not taken on the big things. They're not taken on the hard questions. They're not having the uncomfortable conversations that really looks at their business models and, um, uh, and structure and value proposition in a world of, of constraints and, and, and resources and increasing disruption from weather and, uh, and other things. And so, yeah, that's a ambition, risks, impact. I mean, if those are the only three words one takes from here and takes into their, into their job and career and company, uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Well, the world economy is shaky, and perhaps nowhere is it shakier than in the UK, where there's been a lot of turmoil, both political and economic. I thought it was a good time to check in with our good friend James Murray from Business Green to find out how is all of this affecting companies and their sustainability plans. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing good. <laughs> What's the mood there right now? It just feels like the, I mean, we're the we're used to being the ones over here in the States to being the chaotic ones, the ones where there was a crisis every few minutes. Um, but um, it seems like there's, uh, it's your turn now. It, it really is. I mean, it's just been an incredible sort of six weeks or so since the, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss took over. Obviously, uh, the, yeah, the national bereavement as the Queen uh, passed away and then into just rolling economic problems triggered by uh, the government going for a kind of a mini budget, not a full budget, but uh, enough to really spook markets. Um, And, you know, for years and years, I think so many governments have been a bit blasé about, oh, you'll get punished by the markets if you push this too far. And that, that, you know, that shoe hasn't really dropped with all the quantitative easing that's been done um, and, and sort of debt positions getting worse and worse. But suddenly they did push it too far. And, you know, there's been a run on gilt markets. There's been talk of pension funds potentially collapsing. The pound is back is down towards parity with the dollar, which is almost at record lows for the last 30 years. Um, interest rates are rising. I mean, it's it's a full-blown economic storm, and it's it's deeply worrying. Yeah. Well, and amidst all this, there is a COP coming up. There is uh, just no end of net zero. Uh, you just had a net zero festival, uh, Business Green over in the UK. Uh, there, there's all of these circular economy. Everything's still going on. Is that getting cut back or affected in any way by the economic chaos? Well, I mean, there's kind of two sides to this. The, the first is that the answer is not yet um, and, or doesn't seem to be. And there is a kind of optimistic take on this, that all of these challenges will trigger um, almost an acceleration of some of these trends. Uh, you know, hmm. the, pr- the primary driver of that is that energy prices are now so high, 
you know, they're, 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 you know, more than double what they were this time last year in the UK. If the government hadn't stepped in, they would have gone higher still. Um, so the, the kind of the payback periods on a lot of the things that we need to do for net zero, whether it's renewables generation, energy efficiency improvements, uh, circular economy, all this sort of stuff, those payback periods have got shorter than they've ever been. Um, and they're more attractive than they've ever been. So there's there's lots of ways in which this um, this sort of energy crisis and and economic crisis are highlighting the need for investment in these areas and greater resilience. Um, and and also the you know the government hasn't really thrown it under the bus. They are still sort of talking about you know we need to build more renewables, we need to improve efficiency. They haven't really translated that into much in the way of policy progress yet. But they they haven't sort of gone you know, we're going to ditch this agenda. So there is that side of the argument. The flip side to it, though, is that in the short to medium term, the, the kind of the political chaos and the policy uncertainty and, of course, the rising interest rates, given a lot of these projects are capital intensive, um, all push in the other direction. And, and you know, it seems highly likely that you will see some companies kind of press pause or just wait to see what the shakeout's going to look like, you know, is the government even going to survive? I mean, there's talk of, you know, and, and further changes potentially if they can't get a grip in the next few weeks. Um, and, and you know, that kind of full spectrum instability is just, it's just not conducive with long-term investments uh, of the like we need to see. So, you know, the pressures are pulling in different directions. Um, it doesn't have to be a catastrophe for net zero, but it's, you know, it's not ideal, is it, by any stretch? Well, when I was over in your office in London last month, uh, we talked, it was the week that uh, you got a new prime minister and lost a queen. And there was a lot of, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, the Liz Trust and what the, you know, days old at that time um, story might be as it relates to sustainability. Uh, what have you seen in the past, well, I guess, five weeks? I mean, it's it's very, very confused. So, and it, it's a little bit all over the place, which kind of speaks to the wider economic choices that they've made so the first thing to say is they are wanting to reopen fracking in the uk they are wanting to drill for more oil and gas um they are sort of anti-regulation generally that's kind of their instinctive impulse so there's been lots of talk of them like trying to roll back nature protections and the like so there's lots of stuff that environmental groups um, and green businesses are hugely hugely worried about um the flip side to that is you know they as i say they haven't got rid of net zero targets they're talking about you know greater energy independence and that includes investment in nuclear includes investment in wind um uh, and and solar although they're not keen on solar farms either so it's again it's this sort of slightly confused picture that's making it difficult for people to move forward with investments um but it you know it's certainly not as supportive as arguably Boris Johnson was to this agenda um, and certainly not as supportive as the opposition is choosing to be currently. I mean, one of the big things has been that as the government's got um, less coherent on on support for environmental um, progress, uh, the opposition's coming out with a very strong position to say, look, we are we're all for green investment. That's that's one of our top economic priorities. So we're kind of getting a bit a bit of a firmer dividing line than we used to have in British politics um, on on climate action. And all of this taking place uh, in another less than four weeks is COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Uh, how is this going to affect the UK government's approach to that? Well, again, that's another area where environmental groups are very concerned. And in fairness, this is not just about the UK. You know, you've seen the dash for gas um, across the whole of Europe um, mm. and the US as well. 
um, you've seen all of these industrialized countries or not all of them, but a lot of them um, under economic pressure and not delivering on their kind of climate finance commitments uh, to developing an emerging economy uh, governments. Uh, so the kind of it, it was always going to be a very um, divisive COP. Uh, you know, the last few COPs, there's been this kind of joint mission to finalize the Paris rulebook um, and and deliver more progress on decarbonisation, which arguably in Glasgow last year, you kind of got the culmination of that and you had a degree of success. Now the focus is back on these questions of justice, um, of, of finance for developing countries um, at a time when uh, industrialised countries are feeling their own really intense economic pressures and are, not, and are looking yeah. quite inwards. Um, so, that, you know, there's real concern here that this is set up for a COP that could be really quite punchy. Um, and, and it's not particularly clear that, you know, where's the landing zone for an agreement? Whereas, you know, I think this time last year going into COP26, it was quite clear what the priorities were. Um, this time, the priorities for the hosts will be progress on climate finance and loss and damage and areas such as that. Um, and there's not much indication from the US, EU, UK or others that they're in a position to really compromise on any of that. So um, I, th I think a lot of seasoned observers are looking at COP27 and are quite concerned that uh, when you also add in, of course, the geopolitical tensions and, of course, Russia's appalling behaviour, um, the, the, the disagreements with China and, and its increasingly bellicose rhetoric on a number of issues, um, you're, you're looking at what could be a real diplomatic challenge. Yeah, well, that's uh, the story for next month um, and uh, lots to keep our eyes on. James Murray's editor-in-chief of Business Green over in London. James, thanks so much and uh, good luck. Cheers. Thanks, Chuck. We might need it. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. You can also check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We welcome your questions, comments, tips, and all that. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by DevESG. DevESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz. That's www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz.